Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Nahum. We continue our journey through the Minor Prophets. Uh, you'll find those at the end of the Old Testament, so if you have trouble finding it, just go to Matthew and just turn back a few pages and, you're, and you'll, you will find uh, Nahum. As you're turning there, I want you to imagine with me this morning that you're on the battlefield. And as you are in a hard-fought battle for the victory, suddenly you see upon the horizon an air force. And I mean an amazing air force, the best air force on the planet. What do you feel in that moment? What do you feel in that moment as you see the fact that this powerful air force is heading towards the battlefield? Well, it depends. And what it depends on is whose side are they on? If the uh, emblem on their wings match the emblem on the patch on my shoulder, I'm feeling really, really good. If uh, I have no match that, uh, patch that matches them, I may feel very bad. If they're on my side, I may feel like the battle is now won. If they're not on my side, I think I'm finished. And that's really what we see in Nahum, is the power of God revealed before two nations. And one nation sees it as their destruction and realizes it as their destruction. The other nation realizes it as their deliverance. And we're going to look uh, at primarily at chapter 1. Uh, there's three chapters in Nahum, but uh, chapter 1 really sets the stage as to what's going on. And, and, and chapters 2 and chapters 3 are just more about, uh, about the destruction uh, and how it's going to play out uh, for Nineveh, or the Assyrians. So verse 1, it says this, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, God's wrath against Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are in the dust of his feet, or the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the waters, Bashan and Carmel, wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. 
For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break this yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes the peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Forever again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Let's pray one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we live in a world where so many presume upon your patience, upon your long-sufferingness, not knowing, God, that they're storing for themselves up wrath. And God, there's others of us who do not understand the great deliverance that we found in the God who's allowed us to take refuge. God, thank you that we can call you our refuge this morning. God, move in our hearts. Communicate through your word. God, we want to know you more when we walk away from this text. God, if there be someone here who hasn't sought refuge, who's still an enemy, God, I pray they would walk away from here being your friend, being one who has taken refuge in you. God, move. Move in this text. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we see here, in, if you notice in chapter 1, it's almost confusing because God is going back and forth talking to the nation that he's destroying and then his own nation which he's delivering. And so what I want us to do is just break down chapter 1 and really look. It starts off with this character explanation of who God is, what God is like, and then it kind of breaks down what's happening between these two nations. And that's how I want to handle this text. So first we want to look at this explanation of the character of God. That God is simultaneously both a God of wrath and a God of rescue. Nahum begins with a description of God and His character. And it's a picture of both the wrath of God and the mercy of God depending on which nation you find yourself in. We see in Nahum a God who is simultaneously in his actions destroying one people and bringing safety to another. In verse 3 it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Like in just one phrase there, we really have the, the revelation of this God who is hey, he's long-suffering, but don't mess with him because he's a God of power. Be very careful how you handle this God. So we see this back and forth, and we see both these aspects revealed here. First, let's look at the wrath of God. We want to notice that God has the desire to avenge. Verse 1, 
calls him a jealous and avenging God. We really don't like to think, speak of God in such scary terms, but, but God seems to have no problem in speaking of himself in terms such as vengeance and jealousy. I mean, God chooses in one verse, in, in the second verse, he uses vengeance three times to describe what he d- wants to do and what he's going to do. And I think the reason we struggle with such words like vengeance and jealousy is because we often just associate those things with the sinfulness of man. Because when we speak of, most of the time when we're speaking of a man who is jealous, a man who, is, uh, who has a lot of vengeance, what we're speaking of is a man who didn't get what he thought he deserved, right? He didn't get what he thought was his, and therefore he's mad about it and he wants to inflict damage because he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, you know, Oprah. Oprah, the, the, the moment that she decided to diverge away from the traditional faith, uh, she gives an account of it as, as a teenager, of hearing a preacher who said, the Lord your God is a jealous God. And she was taken back by that. She said, that's not the God that I want to serve, a jealous God? Why is this man speaking of God as a jealous God? Well, the, the issue is that she has is not with the preacher. The issue she has is with the Scripture because we see here that God has no problem describing himself as jealous. But Oprah and I think many others, when they hear that God's jealous or God's vengeful, they automatically attribute the way we think of those terms with man but God is jealous God's jealousy is not like that of man he is actually pursuing what he actually deserves all glory and honor all praise and obedience his jealousy and vengeance is based on reality and what is due his name he's going after what belongs to him The reason jealousy and vengeance is bad when we do is because we're going after things that don't belong to us. Nineveh owes God its worship and obedience, and they certainly owe God kindness to his people, and they had decided to give him none of that. But it's not just about God being jealous of what is owed him. He is also jealous to display the riches of his mercy For the joy of lost people. It's not just about what he wants to get from you. That's not why he's jealous. He's jealous because of what he wants to give to you. Oprah, in her account of of that phrase, of of hating that phrase, she said, she said, God? God's jealous of me? He's jealous of me? No! No! God's not jealous of us, he's jealous for us. And that makes all the difference. He's jealous for us to know him and serve him and worship him, not just so he can receive the glory, but so that we can receive the joy of living according to the purposes for which we were created. And so it's good for us to have a jealous God and a vengeful God. 
But but as much as God loves to display his mercy, God cannot and will not simply sweep our guilt under the rug. Verse 3, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Every sin will be accounted for. Every last sin will be avenged. So God has a desire for vengeance. But not only does he have the desire, he has the ability for vengeance. Have you ever known somebody that was all talk? Uh, A story topper is what we used to call them. And in college, we had a story topper that lived in the dorm. And when he came by our room, we had an understanding with each other that it was okay for all of us to kind of play loose with the truth just so we could, and exaggerate, just so we could see how far we could take this guy, which probably isn't a very righteous thing to do. But we had fun. How, how much far, how far can we get this guy to talk, to, 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 to just tell us about his abilities and what he's done? Because he could always top, no matter how good your story was, he could always top it. He was all talk. But Nahum wants us to be clear that God is not just saying, hey, I'm a vengeful God, I'm a jealous God. He wants us to know that God can back it up. Verses 2 through 5 is just him saying the amazing power that, that, is, that is our God. Verse 2, that he keeps, keeps wrath for his enemies. And then verse 3, it talks about weather. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. So God is the God of weather. He can, if he wants to destroy his enemies, he can throw up a tornado with just a word. And his control over bodies of water in verse 4, he rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. I mean, have you stood on the ocean and you can't see the end of it? And it's amazing that God can speak it to be dry in just one moment. Or the power of a river, we, as we've seen rivers in, in recent years overflow and just the great destruction that those things cause, that God can dry them up with just one word. And then the mountains, you ever seen the Rocky Mountains and the majesty of their strength and how tall they are, and you know how long they've been here and that they will always be here until the earth's destruction. It says that those same mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. Then in reflection of this immense power, the, the question that Nahum asks is, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The obvious answer is no one. Then it goes on, his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. It's one thing to feel angry and slighted. It's a whole nother thing to have absolute abundance to inflict your vengeance. And that is what God has. And the only reason he doesn't do it every day is out of his great mercy and his long suffering towards us. 
But we also see in chapter 1, as his power is, is, is noted, that we also see all these interjections of it being a great thing. And that's, of course, speaking of Israel. Verse 7 and 8, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 13, And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So we, we just see here this char- the character of God is this, is that, is that he's a God that, that rescues his people. He's a God that has every ability to punish those who stand against him. And so let's look at the recipients of his character in his wrath and his rescue. First, we want to look at Nineveh. God is wrathful against his enemies. So the the prophecy here is that Nineveh is about to be destroyed. Think of this in light of Jonah, which we just preached. uh, We we just had a sermon on about, I guess, three weeks ago. And, and at the end of Jonah, what do we have? We have a God who is standing there trying to tell Jonah, Jonah, I'm having mercy on these people. Should I not have mercy on these people? I'm a merciful God. I'm going, these people have repented, and therefore I am going to have mercy on them. Can you not see that their need for, for mercy? And then here in Nahum, we have their destruction. And that God seems absolutely wholehearted, committed to the destruction of Nineveh. What changed? Nothing. Nothing changed. And that's the problem. Because for us, it's just been a few weeks since we've heard about the mercy of God in Nineveh. But it was over a century between the time God had decided to destroy Nineveh and Nineveh had repented and he said, I'm not, I'm going to have mercy on them. It was over a couple of generations had gone by. Two or three generations had gone by and God giving them an opportunity to make that initial repentance real, to truly turn to God, to quit the evil that they were doing and, and, and to turn and, and give their allegiance to God. They had... A lot of time. But they had not. They made a fatal flaw, which is given to us in Scripture. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think we live in a society that time and time again presumes on the mercies of God. You know, there's a, a thing we've done with our kids before um, where 
we, we're going to discipline them. They've done something wrong. So we take them, and, and they know they're about to get huge rep- repercussions, and we say, I'm going to give you grace this time. And they're so thankful to have that grace. But you know what tends to happen? They tend to kind of say, hey, I got grace last time. Let me see if I get grace this time. And so their call anytime they're in trouble is, give me grace, give me grace. I drug my son from the, a service, Sunday night service one time, and he was screaming out the door, give me grace, Daddy, give me grace. Because there's, a, there's two ways you can respond to the mercy of God. You can say, this God is so good. I've got to know this God. I've got to have this God. And then there's the response that Nineveh had, which is, I got away with it once. He seems like a God who lets people off the hook. Let's keep, let's, let's stop this repentance stuff. Let's get back to doing what we were doing. And we're going to see with Nineveh, that was a huge, huge mistake that they made. They were a persistently evil people. They Chapter 2.13 makes God's position on Nineveh crystal clear. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. There's no more fearful phrase in all the world than God saying, I am against you. And for good reason, just to, to get a feel for who these people were, let me give you an account of one of their kings, give an account of how, how he conquered a people this is uh asher banapul which i probably didn't get that name right but you'll know him so you don't it's okay this is what he said as for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god asher and had plotted against me the prince who reveres him i tore out their tongues and abased them As a posthumous suffering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of protective deities between which they had smashed my grandfather. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to the birds of the sky and to the fishes of the deep pools. Hmm, not awesome neighbors. Not great people. A people who notoriously, you can look up carvings and, and, and of, of their conquering and just there's piles of heads and bodies and it's an awful, awful thing. And they had done these things to God's people. They'd done it to various neighboring nations. Uh, many of the northern cities of Israel had fallen to the Syrians and endured their torture and their agony. But we see there was one roadblock to Nineveh. Something you need to know is that they were strong people, and this this, um, prophecy took place between 663 uh, B.C. and Nineveh's fall in 612 B.C. So sometime in, in that place is when this 
prophecy happened. And no one at that time could have seen Nineveh falling. Okay? This wasn't a thing where Nineveh was starting not to be as powerful, and so, so the prophet threw out there, hey, they're going down. No, they were at the peak of their power. Okay, the, 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 them going down would, would have been in no one's mind. They appeared to be so amazingly strong. And sometimes evil in our world and evil people, they seem to prosper. It seems there is no end to the injustices that they perpetuate into the world. They stand in strength while it seems like so many times the righteous stand in weakness. But make no mistake, when God is against you, there's no such thing as solid footing. You may look safe, you may think that you're safe, but if you are against God, you are one step away from demise. In one moment, they're this amazing strength of the area, and the next moment, they're nothing. They're wiped off the map, never to be heard from again. And that's exactly what happened. They became a people that were destroyed. The Babylonians and the Scythians joined forces against them. And, and the rivers uh, that, uh, without going into a lot of detail, these rivers that kind of protected them, they had these rivers and walls, and it was just hard to get to them. It was hard to go against Nineveh. And those rivers that had been a, a, a thing of protection actually end up being their demise. The rivers rise up right as the armies are conquering, and those rivers wash the walls out and makes those rivers fall. Uh, and this is actually recorded in chapter 2, verse 10. The river gates are open, and the palace melts away the city was overrun it was plundered and then burned and it was so badly destroyed that it would not be discovered again till 1842 a.d that's the destruction that this place found that they couldn't find it until just over a hundred or so years ago 150 years ago and, and the archaeologists that found it were very excited because they said, we're going to find gold. We're going to go in there and we're going to find some storehouses of gold and treasures. But they dug and they dug and they dug. And you know what they found? Zero treasures. Because the scriptures were true. They had been plundered and then the place had been burned. They found ash. But they found no gold. In one moment, strong, a strong and powerful nation that was feared by all the other nations, in the next moment, absolute and utter destruction. And this is the fate of the enemies of God. This is what happens to people that presume upon God's grace. That assume because they've known the mercy of God once, that they'll always know it. This is what happens to the enemies of God. But God is a rescuer of those who seek refuge in Him. His power is displayed very differently for, uh, in chapter 1 for the people of Israel. 
First, I want you to notice that they were a people who take refuge in God. Let's be careful here in in saying Israel were the good guys and Nineveh were the bad guys. And, and, And Israel got delivered because they were the good and Nineveh got destroyed because they were bad. Because we've been in the Minor Prophets, we're about a little over halfway, maybe halfway uh, through the Minor Prophets, and I don't know about you, but I don't see Israel as good people while reading the Minor Prophets. I see them as people going through great, horrible seasons of rebellion, and sometimes they look just like Nineveh. They look just like the Assyrians can't tell a bit of difference but there is an explanation given there is an identifying mark given for us in chapter one of who these people are and and how they're identified verse seven he knows those who take refuge in him so at the end of the day though the the people of god and the people of Israel had a lot of problems. Usually, when they were forced to, when their rebellion brought judgment, they finally, oftentimes after a lot of stubborn resistance, would run to God. They would seek their refuge in, in God. Those that receive mercy are not the good. The good don't need mercy. Those that receive mercy are those who take their refuge in God. Who look to God to be their protector and their savior. And really opposite from what we see from Nineveh, a people of strength, we see really a downtrodden people in the people of Nineveh. If you were on the outside looking in on Israel and the Assyrians, you would probably think, hey, God's on the Syria's side because they're strong. Man, God's not on those Israel people's side because they're weak. Look at how Assyria's so strong, man. They, they keep putting the boot, their boot heel on the neck of Israel. So it's got to be Assyria's got to be God's people. And in verse 12, it says, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And so what God's saying is, I'm going to flip the switch. I'm going to show the reality of the fact of who's truly safe here, who's truly going to receive goodness, and that is the people who seek their refuge in me. A lot of times, again, we look, we see people suffering, we assume hey, God's not on their side, and we see people succeeding and say God's on their side, but that's just not the case. It may be temporary, it may look like that, but there will always come that moment where God's going to flip the switch and it's all going to become revealed, the people who take their refuge in God and the people who choose to be God's enemies. We see them... Israel, they are a people that are saved. We see it, God, according to his mercy, delivers his people from centuries of suffering at the hands of the Assyrians. This is what it says in verse 15. 
Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So God delivers them, but he, it's really interesting when we think about how, what he says here. He says, hey, I'm delivering you. Get back to the feasts. Get back to fulfilling your vows. And so what God is saying, hey, I'm showing you mercy. Don't be like Nineveh, who I showed mercy, and they took it as an opportunity to continue to do what they wanted to do. Don't do that. Use my mercy in this moment as an opportunity to get back to serving me, get back to knowing me through the feasts that I've implemented, through the vows that I've asked you to take. I want you to take this, 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 this mercy, this deliverance that I've given to you, and I want you to live for my honor and for, 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 my, honor and for my glory. And that's what our, miss, our, our, our God's mercy is meant to draw us to him, draw us into loving him and knowing him more. And that's how we make sure that we're not an enemy of God, but that we were those who take refuge in him. Both of the minor prophets that deal exclusively with Nineveh ends with a question. In Jonah, we know God decided to spare the, the city, but Jonah does not have the mercy that God has for Nineveh, and he wants them destroyed. And God ends a narrative, the narrative with a question that's really meant to convict Jonah. In Jonah 4.11, he says, and should, I, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. God is urging Jonah, uh, God is urging Jonah to see that mercy is a good thing. He's saying, "Look, I mean, there's children down there, Jonah. Am I not supposed to? You know, they're repenting. Am I not supposed to act on at least on the behalf of the children?" And the cattle who, I mean, they're cattle, but at least they haven't rebelled directly against me. And Nahum ends with a very different question. Nahum 3.19, God says this to Nineveh. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. So God is saying, when I take you out of this earth, tell me, Nineveh, who's going to be sad? You've been so evil, they will rejoice and clap their hands that you're not here. Two questions posed to one city. One question to reveal the glorious grace of God. And a second question to 
to show that we do not presume upon that mercy and grace. That God desires to be merciful, but that mercy has limits. That He has patience, but that patience will run out. Not for His people, but for those who choose to be in rebellion. Let me ask you two questions this morning. Are you an enemy of God? This is the condition we are born into. We vote with our sin and our willing sin. We vote to be the enemies of God. That is the condition of all of us. And God is not quick to anger, but when that anger comes, you better watch out. Because he's in the whirlwind. He's the one who can dry up the ocean with a word and make the mountains tremble at his feet. Are you an enemy of God? The second question is, the opposite of that is have you taken refuge in God? While he will never clear the guilty of their guilt, he will take their guilt and put it upon his son. That's what he's done. And so if you will seek your refuge of, of your sin, of your rebellion against God, if you will turn to God in Christ, if you will believe in Christ and what He has done, the, the perfect life that Christ lived, and the, the death that He deserved as He received God's wrath, that just like it was poured out on Nineveh, Wrath that is meant for us, that is poured out on Christ. Have you sought refuge in Christ? It's the, the greatest question that you can possibly answer and know the answer to when you come before a powerful God who can end you with destruction and eternal destruction in a moment is ask yourself, Am I adopted into his family through Christ? Or do I remain in rebellion as one who he is against? When you stand before God, will he call you enemy or will he call you son or daughter? Respond to God. Respond to him this morning before it's too late, before the door shuts as it shut on Nineveh. Respond to God in faith and repentance. Please stand as our musicians come. Respond however God, through His Word, has, respond, has, has, has spoken to you through His Word, through His Spirit this morning. And Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, 
no doubt in this room there are those who exist as your enemy, that you're against. Because they've never sought refuge in Christ. God, there is no way that you clear the guilty apart from Christ. God, I pray that they would realize that, that they would stop trusting and being good and just run, run straight to Christ for refuge. God, I pray for those of us who know you. God, thank you for your amazing mercy and grace that delivers us. Help us to be moved by that this morning and to desire to take that to a world that so desperately needs that deliverance. Move in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name I pray.